You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Pharmaceutical innovation not only allows people with diseases to live longer, some to live at all, it also reduces the cost of treating disease. We're going to talk this morning with Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer for Partnership for Cures. Partnership for Cures is a charity whose dollars go to testing approved drugs and other therapies for new applications. Welcome. Thank you. One of the things that you guys have started doing is a project called Two Years to Cures. Can you tell us something about that? Sure. The Two Years to Cures initiative is an idea that uh, came to us almost by accident. We were funding what we call pilot grants, small grants to try and get data for uh, initial ideas. You need uh, money to get data. You need data to get money. And so we were supplying the money. And a couple of them turned out to be small clinical trials using an existing drug for a new use for a new patient population. And when we saw how quickly we were able to drive better treatments to patients, we thought if we could do this by accident, what would happen if we did it on purpose? And so we put together what we call the Two Years to Cures initiative. And every one of these projects needs to be completed in two years or less, testing a existing drug or other therapy for direct and significant outcome on patients. An example of that might be a Mayo Clinic project that we're funding right now. Uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, lots of patients with blood cancers get autologous stem cell transplants as a treatment. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Mayo Clinic researchers realized that there was a small cohort of patients over the last eight years that did significantly better than the average patient up there. And what they found was one of the machines that they were using to harvest the immune cells at the beginning seemed to be giving a better outcome. And what they found was more natural killer cells were being harvested by this machine, not on purpose, just the way the machine worked, than the other machines that they were using. And turned out that if at day 15 post-transplant you had a certain level or higher of these natural killer cells, you had a much better long-term outcome from your stem cell transplant. And so we're funding a project that'll take about two years to enroll the patients, do the transplants, to uh, prospectively see if we can replicate those retrospective results. So here's something, if it proves to be true, 600,000 of these transplants get done worldwide every year. And with just changing the settings on the machine to harvest more natural killer cells, we could take uh, and significantly improve the outcome for these patients. So that's the kind of project that's typically under a couple of hundred and fifty thousand dollars and takes two years or less. And when it's finished, could get and make a direct patient impact. And those are the kinds of projects we're funding. Outside of the big pharmaceutical companies, uh, where is this funding coming from uh, in the general way? Well, the biggest piece of non-pharmaceutical funding is the government. The NIH and all of its branches, plus Department of Defense, uh, some environmental health, CDC, together they fund tens of billions of dollars of medical research every year. From our standpoint, they generate a huge amount of knowledge, but not very many of their programs are set up to either drive things directly to patients or to reward real innovation. You know, they sort of work on the middle steps between of a 30-step project. They'll be willing to fund steps 5 to 25, but they're not willing to give you money right at the beginning to develop an idea, and they're not willing to give you money at the end to bring it to market. So they do a lot of great work, but it doesn't. a lot of it doesn't really significantly impact patients. So it's more accumulating general knowledge. Like we went to the moon and we got Tang, that type of thing. Yeah, accumulating general knowledge. Actually, if we got some Tang out of NIH, we'd be glad for that. 
It is accumulating general knowledge. It's significantly training young scientists to do good science. I mean, there's great benefit for what they do. It's just not now focused on pushing cures to patients. There's little bits and pieces of what's going on at the NIH. You know, they're trying to do this more, but this is uh, 40 years of ingrained uh, bureaucracy. It's a very, very big institution. Most of the senior scientists in the United States sit on one review board or another. They all function the same way. If you don't have good name recognition, if you've got a brand new idea, if not everybody is believing what you're doing, the chance of you getting funded in the NIH are pretty small. So innovation tends to happen outside the NIH instead of inside the NIH. There are some uh, programs like the Pioneer Grant programs, which are trying to reverse that trend. But you know, 98% of the money that's spent there is in that either administration or that those kinds of middle projects. And you know, two to five percent of the money every year is going to really innovative research. Can you tell us a little bit about the Pioneer Grant Projects? Sure. They tend to reward innovation rather than, you know, mainline thinking. And uh, it's interesting. There was a Wall Street Journal article not that many months ago that talked about a scientist who kept sending in ideas and always getting scored poorly because they were innovative. And then he applied for a Pioneer Grant and he got scored high and he got five years of money, two and a half million dollars to take you know, his ideas and explore them. So, you know, they're complete opposite types of program. The general things that the NIH funds are have to be very mainstream and contributing to what the general scientists think is general knowledge. And the pioneer grants have to be really outside the box kinds of things. More what we would look at as innovations that could really drive things to patients. What are some of the diseases that are not being supported by these basic things and and more where you guys are putting your time and effort? Well, it's interesting. You know, a lot of funding goes into the really well-known diseases. Breast cancer gets a, a huge amount of funding. If you look per breast cancer patient, how much money goes into each into research versus something like lung cancer or some of the orphan diseases, it's a much uh, higher number for breast cancer. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, it's a sort of disproportionate to the uh, the number of patients that die. I mean, lung cancer patients die at a much higher rate than breast cancer patients, and yet per lung cancer survivor, way fewer dollars go to each person. One of the reasons that Partnership for Cures is not disease-specific is that our interest is in taking the research that's closest to making an impact on some patient population and driving it to those patients, whether it's an orphan disease like familial dysautonomia or a big disease like type 1 diabetes. It really doesn't matter to us. We want stuff that's closest to the edge, and we want to try and, you know, either push it over and see if it works or get it out of the way so that people can focus on something else. One of the complaints uh, about pharmaceutical industries, about NIH, about all research grants is that uh, there's tends to be difficult sharing learning, especially in the in the early stages. What kind of communication network do you have set up so the benefits of your information can be shared immediately with doctors and patients? That's a, a great point, and I think that it really stymies things. You know, there's a couple of things that go into this. There's no journal of failed research, and so if my research doesn't work, there's really no way for me to publish it. So if you then take on and get a similar idea a year later, you could actually spend a lot of money doing research exactly like I did and get the exact same result that it doesn't work. And I could have prevented you from doing that if I could have shared that information. And, and that's totally different from what we were all taught of the scientific method is you have your theorem and the goal is to try and disprove it and, and being able to share that. Right. But because of what you know goes into publication, we really 
what we want to see is the success stories because so we can drive them on. But I think we spend a lot of money in not knowing what didn't work. So, you know, we tend to share our successes or our failures at Partnership for Cures. You know, we don't really think of it as a success or a failure. We think of it as a completion, as you said, trying to prove or disprove your theory and then move on. You know, out in the not-for-profit world, people are attacking this issue. Um, there's a group called the Myelin Repair Foundation and another group called the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium, both have a consortium idea where they've put five or six universities together and got them to sign a cooperative agreement so they can share information the minute that it's uh, available. They can share intellectual property and get out of some of the issues that stymie things getting to the public where intellectual property arguments get in the way. And they can use best practices. So if University A is really good at doing, you know, SNPs, and University B is really good at doing patient exams and taking histories, you know, they can share that expertise and not be duplicating each other's effort. It also really spurs scientists working together. And uh, our observation of these programs that are about two or three years old is that they're making a lot faster progress than the old model, which is to fund, you know, 10 different projects at 10 different universities where they all have ownership of their own project, but they can't really work together because if they haven't published it yet, they're not allowed to tell each other. And if they haven't protected the intellectual property, they're not allowed to tell anybody. And so, you know, those consortium ideas are one way that we're starting to work around the fact that pharmaceutical companies and the government really isn't allowed to share both from publication and intellectual property standpoint. Is your group part of any of these consortiums or working hand in hand with them? Yes, we work with a lot of different organizations. You know, we're not disease specific. And if somebody comes to us with a disease specific project, one of the first places we go is to the small, progressive, disease-specific not-for-profits that we know, like the ALS Therapy Development Foundation or the Myelin Repair Foundation, and say, what kind of input do you have? Do you want to take on these projects? This is much more in your, you know, in your wheelhouse. We don't care whether they end up at Partnership for Cures or someplace else as long as they get done. And there's people out there that have uh, significant scientific knowledge that would be helpful. The ALS Therapy Development Foundation is a really interesting idea. And that is they're looking at cures for ALS. So they've set up a mouse model that seems to replicate ALS pretty good. And they've gone to a lot of pharmaceutical companies and said, give us all the drugs that you have and we'll test them in our model at no cost to you. And then if we find something that looks like it works, we'll give it back to you and tell you what the results are and you can take it or you can license it to us and we'll develop it. So, you know, they've basically gone to a stockpile at a lot of different pharmaceutical companies of drugs where there's some known side effects and we know, you know, the chemistry of them and how they're metabolized and, uh, you know, they're trying to find one or two that will work for ALS. Another really interesting way of sort of leapfrogging and adding innovation in to drive cures to patients. How's the response been from the pharmaceutical companies to that? It was slow at the beginning, but uh, it's been much better these days. They have uh, relationships with over a dozen pharmaceutical companies, and that's the good news. The bad news is we've yet to find a drug that really looks like it's having a significant impact. It sort of points out one other issue. We use mice and rats as the prototype for human diseases. We can cure almost any disease in a mouse. Translating those results to humans, especially in something like cancer or really complex diseases like ALS, has been minimal. You know, if we cure high blood pressure in a rat, we're pretty sure we can cure high blood pressure in a human. If we cure cancer in a, in a rat, the odds are it's not going to have the same impact on humans. Once you guys have a research program that shows great promise, where does it go from there? Depending on what stage it's at, it can either go to a larger clinical trial that'll be supported either by the drug company or by someplace in the government. It could go to a drug company for more development and uh, new regulatory approval. So 
a drug that's used for a new use probably will need a, a larger clinical trial than the ones we fund through the two years to cures program. And so, you know, pharmaceutical company usually take that on if they can see some benefit to it. If not, you know, our scientists will apply for a, an NIH grant. But typically that's, you know, that's where those uh, go. And hopefully while they're going there, clinicians will find out about them through the grapevine, through the patient network and through the publication of the early projects in the peer-reviewed journals. So it's vitally important you have information flowing above and below and all throughout the tree. Yeah. The, the three things that we really rely on is uh, our own dissemination of information through our website and our publications. And the website is? The number four, the word cures.org. The fastest way to get it out there is through the patient population because they're really well connected and they're you know really anxious to find out any little tidbit and so they'll spread it out. Um, that sometimes makes it difficult for the clinicians because when the patient comes with information and the clinician doesn't have any place to verify it, it's a little scary for a doctor to be saying, "All right, I'll put you on this new drug regimen." Well, I haven't really heard of it. And then through the peer-reviewed journals and doctor-to-doctor communication and, you know, small presentations at symposiums or drug-specific meetings. I want to thank Dr. Bruce Bloom, who's been our guest today, discussing the progress being made on drug research today. I'm Dr. Joel Heller. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.